0: Good morning everyone. If we haven't met, my name's Tom Barrett, one of the ministers here. And I want to start today's talk with some imagination, a little thought experiment for you. I want you to imagine that I've just met someone who's never heard anything at all about Jesus or the Christian faith. And they discover that my religion is Christianity. They ask me what it's all about. And I say, well, firstly, there's a problem. The problem is that although God made you, you've ignored him and rejected him. But secondly, there's a solution Jesus died in your place so you can be forgiven. Now, if you're someone who knows and believes the Bible, you'll know that I've just told this person two important, precious truths. But I want to ask you have I told this person the gospel? When I first became a Christian, I joined a good Bible teaching Anglican church in Sydney and the gospel I had in my head was pretty much just those two points I just mentioned. Jesus died for my sins, now I'm forgiven and that's the happy ending. I knew that apparently Jesus rose from the dead but it it didn't seem to matter very much. It seemed to me that even if Jesus was still dead, oh well, he died for my sins I can still go to heaven, so it's not a big deal. Have you ever had that kind of thought? I was in late high school when I became a believer. It was only through my university years that I came to see how the gospel in my head was so much smaller than the gospel of the New Testament. Jesus' death for the forgiveness of sins is a wonderful truth. But in the Bible, the headline of the gospel is not forgiveness of sins. The headline of the gospel is that Christ is risen. There we are. When we read through the book of Acts, we see the first generation of Christians telling people the good news about Jesus and the resurrection was consistently at the centre of their message. There's just a few examples listed here. From Jerusalem to Judea to Athens to Rome, the news they kept on announcing was that God has raised Jesus from the dead. And so you'd better pay attention. They did tell people to turn to Jesus for forgiveness and a fresh start. But that forgiveness was to be found in Jesus, the risen King. In our second reading today from the Apostle Paul's letter to the troubled church in Corinth, he wrote to them, I want to remind you about the gospel that I preach to you. And he mentions that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He mentions that Jesus was buried. Then he points out that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he goes on and on to underline that last point, pointing out person after person who has seen Jesus alive. The same writer in 2 Timothy 2 wrote, Remember Christ Jesus, raised from the dead, descended from King David, this is my gospel. We can see that the resurrection is the headline of the gospel. And so this Sunday and next Sunday, through these Easter school holidays, what we're going to do is to stretch out Easter Sunday. This is actually not a new idea. This is what the traditional church calendar has done for centuries. Uh, In the traditional church calendar, Easter is not a long weekend. Easter is a festival that begins with Resurrection Sunday and runs for several weeks. And so we are going to stretch out Easter Sunday and keep on celebrating the resurrection of Jesus and appreciating all its implications. My goal for these two talks is that as we marvel at the full scope of resurrection hope we're inspired to live resurrection-flavoured lives. As we marvel at the full scope of resurrection hope, we're inspired to live resurrection-flavoured lives. Next week, we're going to look at resurrection and Christian action. Today, we're going to explore the resurrection and Christian hope. Now, most human beings hope for something. Some people's hopes fit very much within this life. Their hopes are based on career, relationships, real estate, comfort, children. Others hope for something beyond death. But those hopes are often no more than a a fleeting and vague wish. As we think about Christian hope today, the first thing I want to highlight is that Christian hope has a solid foundation, Now, way, way back through the early Old Testament period, most ancient Israelites assumed that when you're dead, you're dead. You return to the dust, and that's it. This came out in the middle of our first reading from Psalm 30. It said, what what use is it if I die and go to the pit? I can't praise you then, so you'd better rescue me. In Old Testament times, hope lay in community. Hope lay in the idea that, Over time, the people of God would live peacefully in their land, victorious over their enemies. But towards the end of the Old Testament period, God started revealing more. Prophets like Isaiah started to speak about a day when God would win such a decisive victory for his people that death itself would be defeated. Right at the end of the Old Testament period, the book of Daniel spoke about that final day as a day of resurrection... He wrote of the day when multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. The biblical picture of hope was expanding. Resurrection had now entered the picture. But not everyone was convinced. By the time of Jesus, ancient Greek culture and philosophy had become very influential. And some Jewish people around Jesus had started thinking in terms of a soul that could exist separately from your body. Greek philosophers thought it was actually preferable for your soul to exist without the messy encumbrance of a body. Some Jewish people took this thinking on board. Others didn't. Jesus was clearly on board with the mainstream Jewish view where hope lay in resurrection. We could see this when he was debating with the Sadducees, a group who believed that when you're dead, you're dead. And so back then, different opinions abounded, and today, different opinions abound. A lot of people around us today would say, afterlife? I guess I'll find out when I get there. They'll say, how could anyone possibly know in advance? I want to point out today that Christians have an amazingly solid foundation for our hope. Because it's already happened in one person. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. If you're a Christian believer, what is your hope beyond death? What is your long term destiny? You don't have to guess. Jesus has already demonstrated it. He is the first fruits, And this makes resurrection hope a particularly solid kind of hope. It's based on something that is testable. I really appreciated Jeffrey Giragos' interview last Sunday. I don't know if you saw it. He pointed out that something he's sort of taken on board over the years is how Christianity sticks its neck out with historical claims. Unlike other religions, it's not just a set of ideas that you can neither prove nor disprove. No, Christianity is based on a claim about what happened to a particular man at a particular time. And that claim can be tested. It can be poked and prodded to see if it's legit. People come up with all sorts of proposals to try and explain away the claim that Jesus rose. For example, Jesus didn't really die, he just fainted and then revived. Or the tomb wasn't really empty, they just forgot where it was. Or the disciples stole the body, or the Romans stole the body, and so on and so on. If you want to, you can work through all these options for yourself. I've got to tell you, I've done that, and they're very unconvincing. But if someone could convincingly prove that Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Christian hope would evaporate. We'd have nothing. But in fact, there are solid historical reasons to be confident that Jesus really did rise. Christian resurrection hope has a solid foundation in history. But Jesus being the first fruits also means that Christian hope is based on a project that has already begun. A project that is already underway. Here's another imagination project for you. Think for a moment about a road improvement project. Just to pluck an example out of the air, imagine that there is a major road near your house which crosses over a railway line and the bridge over the railway line only has two lanes and so it's always a traffic bottleneck. Can you imagine that? And so you hope for a wider bridge. But if the wider bridge is only an idea that people talk about in the street. Or maybe if the bridge is just a few engineers drawing and a project plan. Even if the bridge becomes an election promise. (laughs) If that's all you've got, your hope is on a pretty flimsy foundation, right? But what if one day you see that temporary fences have gone up? Cement trucks are parked on Blackstone Road, pouring concrete for the foundations of pylons. If the project has begun then your hope for a faster drive to Carlingford has a much more solid basis, doesn't it? Resurrection hope is like that. Because in Jesus, the resurrection age has already begun. A few years ago, I stumbled across this quote. It's from a fairly unknown French theologian called Pierre Benoit. And he wrote, the risen body of Jesus is the first cell Of the new cosmos. The risen body of Jesus is the first cell of the new cosmos. Such a great line. God's kingdom has begun, God's new world has been kicked off. So far, it consists of Jesus' risen body, but the rest of the world will catch up in due time. When the first fruits have appeared, you can be confident that the rest of the harvest is on its way. The risen Jesus makes Christian resurrection hope, a solid hope. But that's not all he does. Jesus' resurrection also shows us what our resurrection will be like. It makes our hope knowable. Imagination time again. When you imagine that a random plant springs up In your backyard, this is not Jack and the Beanstalk, forget about that. A random plant springs up, it's quite attractive looking, doesn't look like it's a weed, and so you don't pull it out, you just leave it there to see what happens. You don't know what it is. If it's going to produce some fruit, you don't know what sort of fruit it's going to be. Until one day you glance into that corner of the yard and there's a little round thing hanging from that plant. It's round and it's sort of green turning red you discover it's a tomato plant. You've seen the first fruits. And so you're no longer wondering what the fruit of this plant will be like. It's like that with Jesus. He is risen. He is the first fruits. And so if you want to know what your future as one of his people is going to be like, look to him. Look at the risen Jesus. That is your destiny and your hope if you're a Christian. And there's three things about the risen Jesus I want to point out today. First thing the Bible points out is that the risen Jesus has a body. The grave is empty. The body which was dead is now walking around. This is not just a spiritual matter. In Luke 24, Jesus appears to his disciples. And they are understandably terrified because they think they're seeing a ghost. But Jesus says, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones. They still can't take it in. So Jesus says, do you have anything here to eat? And he eats a piece of broiled fish in their presence. Later, he invites the sceptical Thomas to put his finger on the marks in his hands and his side, the evidence of his faithful suffering, evidence that he is the same person. Later still, Jesus meets the disciples by the edge of the lake and cooks them bread and fish for breakfast. Jesus is risen in his body with arms and legs and the ability to eat and cook. And this shows us the nature of our hope. To be raised like him with bodies. I don't know how you feel about fish for breakfast. It wouldn't go down well in my house at all. But if you like eating in general, if you like cooking for friends, Jesus shows us these things are part of the age to come when you are raised with a body. Is there anyone here who likes bike riding? Mmm, I had a feeling there was just one or two in this suburb. There's every reason to think that there will be bike riding in the age to come. If you like playing sport, or running, or dancing, or hugs, or making things with your hands, these are part of the life to come, raised with Christ. Isn't this a so much better hope than the Hollywood cliche of going to heaven to sit on a cloud playing a harp? And can I point out that having this kind of hope takes pressure off this life. People who believe that you die and that's it, or people who think that the next life is just some sort of floaty, disembodied, disappointed thing, they have to frantically make the most of this life while they can. Quick, go on holidays. Quick, enrol your kids in all the activities that can possibly fit into the week. Quick, buy a house and enjoy it. Eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow you may die. I think many people hit middle age and feel this dread that the clock is ticking. Good health won't last forever. Quick, got to pack in the experiences. And it's easy for us as Christians to absorb that anxiety from the culture around us. But actually, resurrection hope frees us from that anxious rushing. Because as Christians, we have an eternity to play games, ride bikes, build things, explore the world, learn new skills. The goodness of embodied human life is part of our eternal hope. And so there's no panic to get everything done now. I think that's a pretty liberating thought. But of course, our bodily existence here and now is not 100% a positive thing, is it? If you're someone who lives with chronic arthritis or a hormone disorder that makes you tired and depressed or a degenerative illness or chronic migraines and so on and so on and so on, then the idea of an eternal future involving a body may not sound too good. The idea of escaping from the body can start to seem pretty attractive. I've been watching a fairly silly action movie on Netflix about this little group of people who for some reason become immortal They can get shot or stabbed or whatever, and it hurts, but they don't die. Apparently, they've been this way for centuries and centuries and centuries, because they never die, but they all speak with modern American accents. (laughs) Like I said, it's a pretty silly movie. But one thing that the characters in this movie do bring across, which is helpful, is that living forever in this world, in these kinds of bodies, wouldn't be that much fun. but forget about silly fictional movies. Come back with me to solid, trustworthy history. We need to see from the Bible that Jesus' resurrection body was profoundly transformed. His wounds were still visible, but he was no longer wounded by them. Before he died, in his three years of proclamation ministry, Jesus had miraculously raised several people from the dead. But a better word for those miracles was resuscitation. Those people were not transformed, they came back to life just the same as before. A few years ago I realised that my mental picture of Jesus' resurrection was actually a lot like that. I hadn't quite clicked that he was utterly transformed when he rose. The way that the risen Jesus could just appear somewhere and then disappear again, that shows that he's not just been resuscitated in the same form. No, he's not playing by the same rules anymore. He's been transformed. And it's the same with the resurrection that we look forward to. Let's look again at 1 Corinthians 15. The people in Corinth were pretty unimpressed by the idea of resurrection. They looked at their saggy, wrinkly Corinthian bodies and thought, God's kingdom's going to be made of this stuff? Come on. And because of this, they were discounting the idea of resurrection altogether. But Paul corrects them by talking about seeds and plants. There's a continuity between the seed and the plant, isn't there? You can't have one without the other. But as a seed becomes a plant, it undergoes a pretty remarkable transformation, doesn't it? And Paul says the relationship between these bodies and our resurrection bodies is like that. Verse 42, he says, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown, this body, is perishable but it's raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Aha, you say, he says, spiritual body. We're talking about floating on clouds after all, are we? Don't be misled. I sit at the dinner table thinking about how tomato sauce is made from tomatoes, Barbecue sauce is not made from barbecues. Have you noticed this? (laughs) Adjectives work in different ways. A steam train is not made out of steam. It's powered by steam. And this spiritual body is powered by the Holy Spirit. It's a transformed body that is fit for God's eternal kingdom. We have serious transformation to come. These bodies are not fit for God's eternal kingdom. But that doesn't mean we'll leave bodily existence behind. We'll be transformed like a seed into a plant. And so the moments when we experience the limitation, the frustration of these perishable, weak, dishonourable bodies we've got, as these bodies decay and cause us trouble those experiences are actually opportunities. Opportunities for our resurrection hope to shine all the brighter. In some ways, sickness and pain are useful in helping us to long for the transformation that is to come. Imagine if you own a really, really old, really run-down car and it's clearly on its last legs and so you bite the bullet and go off to buy a brand new car. But you don't get the brand new car on the spot. It's gotta be shipped from overseas and delivered to the dealer, blah, blah, blah. And so while you're waiting for the new car to arrive, you're driving along in your old car. And you're thinking, hmm, this car kinda still works. Maybe I shouldn't have spent all that money on the new one. But as you're thinking that, boom. Your old car breaks down in the middle lane on Epping Road. (laughs) And it's a pain. You're stranded, you're late, it's stressful but it's kind of good news, isn't it? It shows that you made the right decision to spend all that money on the new car. It confirms that you've put your hope in something else. Romans 8 says, We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Philippians 3 says, we eagerly await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come and transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. And that leads to our final point. When Paul mentioned Jesus' glorious body, he's not just saying it's really great. He's tapping into something bigger, something about the relationship between humanity and the rest of creation. Let me take you on a really quick journey through the Bible on this topic. In the Old Testament, in Psalm 8, we have a picture of what humanity was meant to do in the world. It says, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. What an amazing, prestigious position that the human race was made to occupy, crowned with glory and honour. But it often doesn't match our experience, does it? When we humans get knocked around by hurricanes or earthquakes or droughts or mood disorders or cancer or infectious viruses or whatever, it doesn't feel like we're crowned with glory and honour and ruling over the world, does it? in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews recognises this discrepancy. It quotes Psalm 8 and it says, God left nothing that is not subject to humans. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. Something has clearly gone wrong. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour. The risen Jesus holds the glorious creation ruling position that humanity was always meant to hold. And he shows us the glorious creation ruling position that his people will eventually hold. Crowned with glory and honour. That is your resurrection hope in Christ. At Jesus' resurrection, he was vindicated, he was shown to be in the right. He was lifted up and put on a throne. And if you're a Christian, that is your future. When you are raised with Jesus, to rule the world with Jesus. As a human being, that's what you were made for from the beginning. That's a glorious hope, isn't it? So to wrap up, what I'm hoping that you can see today is that if you belong to Jesus... You have a hope like no other. It's a hope that includes being embodied, transformed and glorious. There is no other hope like that. Don't settle for cheap imitations. Hold on to that hope. When Jesus taught us to pray that God's kingdom would come, he was telling us to long for resurrection day. The day when death is not just defeated, but destroyed altogether. He was telling us to pray for God to bring on the day when our embodied, transformed, glorious hope becomes a reality for us, just like it's already a reality for Jesus. So let's keep on praying that prayer. And as we wait for that great day, we know our hope is solid, Because Christ is risen. He is risen indeed.